Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Good morning. It's good to see everyone. Let me invite you to open up with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardback underneath the seat around you, and you are more than welcome to grab one of those and turn open with us. We'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 this morning as we continue a sermon series through the book of Ecclesiastes. If you are flipping there in one of the black hardbacks, I think you'll be on page 554. Ecclesiastes is a small, short little book. We don't often look at it a whole lot, and there is some reasons for that. There are a few reasons why we don't always um, read and emphasize Ecclesiastes. It can be a little bit of a Debbie Downer book, as we've seen for the last couple of weeks. But we get to this morning, the most famous passage in Ecclesiastes, um, the most celebrated passage in Ecclesiastes. And so, more or less, we're actually going to enjoy ourselves in the book this morning and just take what comes and be like, hey, look, a happy moment from this otherwise sad, sad man uh, that we're reading here in Ecclesiastes. Before we get there, I want to ask you, did anyone notice this? It was in the news this week. It kind of made its way around the internet. Um, there's a, an Indian man, um, Raphael Samuel, I believe his name is, who is bringing suit against his parents. He's, he's suing his parents. Anyone catch this in the news? The lawsuit is over the fact that his parents gave birth to him. As most lawsuits are, right? Upset at your parents giving birth to you. His, his claim, his contention is, right, that he did not give consent to being born. So his parents, like some rude parents out there, didn't ask if he wanted to come into this life or not. And instead, they brought him into this life unwillingly, unwittingly. And so he claims, right, that they should take care of him. It's their moral responsibility. It's their obligation to pay his way, to make sure he's happy, things of that nature. Um, now, the lawsuit itself is an interesting one, maybe kind of silly. It makes us giggle. Um, there were a couple pieces of the story that made me uh, enjoy the, the articles even more so. One being that apparently he has a great relationship with his parents. It must be pretty strong because I don't think my relationship with my parents would survive a lawsuit. Uh, like that very well. Uh, the other thing that interested me was both of his parents are lawyers. So <laughs> they interviewed his mom, and she was like, I'll meet you in court. We'll see, <laughs> we'll see how the judge rules in our favor. Uh, this idea, though, that you might be upset with your parents or you might wonder whether your parents should have or shouldn't have brought you into the world might strike us as kind of silly, but it actually has a philosophical background. Um, people actually ask questions like this before as we look out in life and, and think about what we should do and what our responsibilities should be. Um, the, the belief that parents don't have the moral standing to bring children into the world without their consent is a philosophy called antinatalism. And the idea is fairly simple. It's that the world is so full of suffering and evil, and you can't guarantee what your children will experience or won't experience, that how do you have the authority— Right? How do you have the decision-making capabilities to decide to bring someone else into what can sometimes be a mess? Um, you can understand right, how different experiences might lead you to view this more favorably or more unfavorably. If you grew up in a part of the world or a time in world history where there's lots of suffering and pain, you can maybe understand someone wondering really deeply, should I bring another human being into this? Is it worth it? What's my responsibility to that? Um, and in places where the world is largely peaceful and prosperous, you have people less able to understand questions like this. Um, they're very interesting questions, though, and Christians, as well as other religions, have pondered these questions for, for many, many years. Um, 
you and I largely live in a society confused about questions like this. You see this in the abortion debates that happen in the political realm. And they're, they're even these questions that underlie other debates, I think, that we have. Um, we just have questions. What is our responsibility to unborn children? What's our responsibility to societies still to come? What's our responsibility in the way we treat the world, in the way we treat each other, in the way we treat the economy, to the kids that we might have, we might not have, to the society they might live in? Um, this is called the identity crisis, or the non-identity crisis. How much of our actions need to be taken in light of what may or may not exist in the future? Um, and then you have another question, which is, how many kids should you stop at? So full disclosure, I have no kids. Um, many of us in the congregation do have children, so it's a little bit of a tilted question that I'm asking here, right? Very open-ended and very curious. Um, most of us, I think, would agree that the world is probably not best served if all of us just have as many kids as humanly possible. Like, if we just hit puberty and start churning them out, Okay until Mother Nature calls it a day on us. I think we'd all go, okay, maybe something's wrong in society like that. Maybe some of us are like, I never thought of it that way. Um, if that's the case, right, if there is, for society as a whole, or for you and your wife, for you and your husband, a number of children where you're like, I think we'll call it quits. At this, I think this is the right number. Then the question is, how do we get there? I mean, how do we really decide whether a certain group of people should have kids, if they should, how much they should or shouldn't? In my discussions with people, what I've found is, maybe not surprising, most people don't think this way when they have kids. It's kind of an instinctual, natural process, right? And they think about what's good for them and for their family. They think about the way they grew up and the things that they might desire, uh, things of that nature. But the question, I think, is still an interesting one, and it still remains. Um, I want to answer this question um, through our passage in Ecclesiastes this morning. Because I think questions like this, like, should we have children? Why should we have children? What is it about the world that makes us want to bring children confidently into this world? I think they get at larger, deeper issues, like how we view the world itself, how we view world history, how we view the different things that make up our experience in creation and and where it's going in the process. Um, So Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 15 are what we'll look at this morning. And I think they bring us into um, a possible answer to that question. Uh, as well as a deeper look into some bigger life issues. Um, Let's read together. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We'll pick up in verse 1. For everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Some of us might start singing. There's a famous song that was made in the 60s, turn, 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 over this passage of Scripture. Um, If you are like me, you've never heard this song. Okay, unless someone had mentioned it to you and asked you to read it. If you're not like me, you just kind of scoffed when I said that. Okay, like this 15-year-old, okay, what does he know? Uh, it was a very famous song. It was over this poem. This, this poem, verses 2 through 8, one of the most famous poems in the Bible. Definitely the most famous passage out of the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, and, and so he's going to go. Everything is a season. There's a time for everything. Verse 2, he lists these out in couplets. There is, he says, a time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. 
It's a really beautiful poem where Coalette, the author of Ecclesiastes, sits back and, and lists out in these couples different things that make up our experience of the world. Now, this passage, like many in Ecclesiastes, is difficult to interpret. What is he trying to, to mean when he lists off these words for us? What's the message here that the author is trying to convey? Some people see this poem and see in this poem great comfort. Um, they see this as a very orderly way to look at life. And there's some comfort that they can pull from this. Namely, the comfort would be this. According to this passage, and I think most of our observations about life, the one thing that never changes in life is the fact that things will always be changing. The one constant you have in your life is that whatever situation you're in right now, with the people around you right now, that will not always be the case. I mean, in a very simple way, this is what it means for you and I to live as creatures in God's creation. This is what it means for us to be bound by time. Things are always changing. Um, there is this thing that happens after someone goes through a period of great grief. They lose a loved one, or they lose a job, or they lose a house, or something like that, where the world keeps going. And people keep doing things, and businesses keep being made and keep making transactions, and politicians keep getting elected and keep getting voted off. And people keep getting married, and they keep getting divorced. People keep having kids, and they keep having grandkids, and the world keeps moving. And and you can maybe imagine why, if you're in a difficult situation right now, this could be comforting. Because no matter what pain you're experiencing right now, no matter what relational strife you're experiencing right now, no matter how bad things might be, things change. And maybe you're in a season of pain or suffering, but maybe there'll be a new season to come. You're weeping now, but maybe there'll be laughter to come. You're mourning now, but maybe there'll be dancing to come. And people read this poem and they think, what a world that we live in, where things are moving and we can trust that they'll keep moving. We can trust that there'll still be more for tomorrow than we experience right now and today. Others look at this list and see it as pessimistic, as almost fatalistic or deterministic. That is, what can we actually change about the world? So they see this list and they go, these are things that always are. It doesn't matter what you and I do. It doesn't matter how we contribute to them or how we experience them. People are always born and they'll always die. Sometimes there's peace and sometimes there's war. Sometimes people love and sometimes people hate. These things go on and on and on. There are different ways that we can approach this. Perhaps we can see what the author is trying to get when we read verse 9. He asks a question after he he gives us this poem. The question is this, verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? If you've been with us in Ecclesiastes for the first two chapters, you've seen this is a, a big theme for this author. He's already talked about this multiple times. You see, his big problem with the world as it is, is that at the end of the day, after you've lived and after you've died, you have nothing left over. He calls this gain, surplus, profit, like a business who has money left over in the bank account. For the author of Ecclesiastes, the world turns and it turns and it turns, and no matter what that turning produces or consists of, things ultimately stay the same, at least for you and I. There's a couple things we can notice about the poem. The first one is that all of these things, more or less, are things that happen to us. They're not things that we choose to do or choose to be. I think this illustrates this question here. You and I are born and we die. And like we've already discussed briefly, you and I don't choose to be born. This man's upset. His parents didn't consult him and get his consent for birth. 
as far as I know, that's the only way to be born, is to do so unwittingly, to do so without your permission. You and I don't choose where we come into the world. We don't choose when we come into the world. We don't choose what the circumstances would be. And surely all of us are probably thankful that we were born at the time we were, as opposed to some other times. And surely all of us can probably imagine other situations where we might say, it wouldn't be so bad to be born there, to those people in that situation. But regardless, right, it's just something that happens to us. We're born. Same with death. For the most part, most people don't choose the circumstances of their death. Even when they they try to make a choice in the matter, it's largely pushed upon them, right, by sickness or by something else um, that makes them think about and want to um, take control or make some kind of choice over when they die. He, He talks about the plants, this kind of the helpless state that the plants are in. They are planted and then they're plucked up and there are just seasons for this. Even if we think of this from a human perspective, we plant and we pluck up, we harvest. These are not things we do whenever we want to. I am not much of a green thumb, so I take this from advice from other people. I trust them. You can't just plant whatever you want to plant whenever you want to plant it, wherever you want to plant it. There are times when you can plant and there are times when you can harvest. This is just the way the world rotates. You can do this throughout the list. You can also notice uh, that for this poem, Coelet, the author of Ecclesiastes, is not giving us a prescription. He's not telling us what we should do or should experience in life. So I think we read the list incorrectly when we find justification for certain things. So some people will look at this list and they'll say, see, it's not always bad to hate people because there's a time to hate people, right? It's not always bad to kill people because there's a time to kill people and the time is now when you're talking to me like that but we we don't think uh, ecclesiastes is actually giving a prescription here there should be a time to be born and there should be a time to die we know for colette he doesn't like this death thing he thinks this is a pretty raw deal there's it's not that there should be a time to kill and there should be a time to heal it's that this is just how the world is there are times when People kill and are killed, and there are times when people are healed. If we were choosing from this list, I think we would not choose all of these couples equally. I know I wouldn't. I'd go down and I'd say, okay, like being born, not so big of a fan of dying. I'd take a little less killing, a little more healing. I'd take a little less crying, a little more laughing, a little less mourning, a little more dancing. We're not Baptists, so we can do that. A little more embracing. A little less not embracing, more seeking, definitely, than, than losing. I'm a minimalist, so I'm not sure about the keeping part of this. A time to keep silent. Um, okay, I, I talk a lot. A time to speak. I'm down for that one. A time to love. Yeah, I'll take that more than a time to hate. A time for peace. I'll take that every day over a time for war. This is, for Colette, simply, I think, a list of the ingredients that make up life. For each one of us, no matter where we're born, when we're born, the circumstances that surround it, or the circumstances of our life, even the choices we choose, this is what God puts into the ingredient bowl that produces the human experience, creation. And for some of us, this is better than for others. We have to acknowledge this. Some of us are born in places and times where there's war, and it's more painful to live. And some of us are born in places and times where it's peaceful. And it's perhaps easier, more joyful to live. These are the ingredients that make up that which we call life, that what we experience. And for the author here, he says, no matter what we experience, at the end of the day, we're left with nothing. We all die again, and what is there to 
keep taking. Now, you can see why the author of Ecclesiastes, you can imagine him asking this question, why bring a child into the world? If we already know what the ingredients are. If at best they get lucky and they have more peace than they have war, and they have more love than they have hate, why would we, would we choose to do that? What are the ethical responsibilities, the moral obligations that we have for this? If you really were to think about this question, right? Like I said, I don't think most of us really think in terms like this, and that's probably a better thing. Um, but if we ask, like, what is, why do we do these things? What, what moral um, justification is there for this? Then we can probably say the, most of the reasons people give for having and even not having kids are probably not too, you know, deep probably a little shallow. They're probably leaving a little bit to be wanted. Um, We might not ever say it like this, but for many people, the reason they have kids is um, because they're lonely. They want relationships. And lots of people have pointed out and observed, and I'm sure the parents here will know this very well, um, that a dog or a cat might be better at this. Um, At at filling that kind of lonely spot in your life. Um, And that, in fact, in reality, sometimes having a child actually makes you lonelier can separate you from your friends. It can separate you from your spouse. As a matter of fact, in practicality, it doesn't always fulfill that purpose. And then we think, well, okay, well, well, maybe we have children because we think there's some meaning there. It'll add some meaning to our life. And then again, we might be told, be careful here that you're not treating a child like a BMW or like a new house or a new job. And just expecting that once you have this child, your life will be better and you'll find more meaning and you'll have a reason to get up in the morning. People, again, might observe it doesn't always actually work out that way. Like everything else in our lives, sometimes we hope will give our life meaning, it can disappoint us. And far be it from you to be that child who has the weight of his parents' existence on his shoulders or her shoulders. I mean, what a a responsibility, what a burden to give a child. It's up to you to give my life meaning. And we've seen families destroyed this way. We've seen children destroyed this way. Equally, the questions of why we don't have children. I don't want it to be a bother to me. I don't want to be tied down, right? Or kind of selfish. What, what is really going on here? The author of, of Ecclesiastes gives us many reasons to, to wonder perhaps why things are the way they are and how much we really enjoy at all times the way things are. But he continues and he comes to, in Ecclesiastes in chapter 3 here, a, a turning point. He comes to kind of a breakthrough. The sun kind of comes in onto the dark and dreary landscape that he has painted. And we get to see another carpe diem passage, another kind of seize the day joyful passage that I think will get us closer to an answer. We keep reading after verse 9. I've seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Now this verse, verse 10 here, is actually almost verbatim, similar to what he said in chapter 1, verse 13. Only there he adds that it's a grievous task, the busyness. So it's a very negative thing there. He says, I've seen what God gives us to keep us occupied um, during our lives. But in verse 11, he says this, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Two things that Colette says here that change the equation a bit. The first thing he says is, he makes everything beautiful in its time. So there's a time to be born and a time to die. There's a time to plant, a time to harvest. There's a time to kill, a time to be healed. There's a time to love and a time to hate. And yet, Scripture says, out of all these ingredients, a dish is being formed. Something's being baked. 
Something's being done by God in creation. And he says, if we could step back, which he acknowledges we can't, if we could, though, if we could step back and look at it all, we would say it fits. It's ordered. The word here, beautiful, the Hebrew word is tov. Um, maybe it shouldn't be so sentimental with the, the word beautiful. Um, he's really getting at ordered here, fitting. It's appropriate. The sense is that the things that we experience in our life, there is some reason to them at the end of God's day. Not necessarily that they're, they have meaning in and of themselves. There might be senseless evil that we experience. But the, 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 the path of Scripture is that even out of the most senseless and meaningless of evils, God brings life and meaning. I mean, this is a recurring story throughout the Bible over and over and over again. Something bad happens, and God takes that situation and turns it into good. Brother gets sold into slavery, and then he ends up being able to help his family. His people get sold into slavery as a whole, and then they are let out and redeemed. God himself comes into creation, is killed by his creatures, And this, the darkest day of creation, turns into its most glorious. Everything fits at the end when we can step back and see all of it the way that God sees it. Now, I'm sure that you, much like myself, have things in your life that you don't understand how it fits yet. I do. I have things where where I've experienced something, and I go, as as for the, for the, as, you know, for, for my deepest reasonings, for, for as big of an imagination as I can possibly have, I don't see how, I don't understand how this fits. I don't see how this is ordered in time. I don't see how this becomes beautiful in time. To me, this seems like just a sharp piece of glass. And maybe best case scenario is I ignore it or I get over it and forget it. But there was no real reason it was there. It's kind of like when you step on something in your in your house, right? There's like a staple on the ground or a nail or something like that. And you don't really question, right? You're not like, I wonder why this was put there. I wonder what the purpose was in my life. I wonder how I'm going to change now as a person after stubbing my toe on this piece of furniture. No, you're just upset and you're angry and you're hurt. And you yell out a whole bunch of Christian words right in the moment. And then you move on. There's no purpose to it, right? There's, it just happened. It was unfortunate. You deal with it. And you try to continue on with your life. It's not the case, Scripture is saying, for, for our lives. That relationship, that loss, that hurt, it doesn't make sense now, and it might not ever make sense to you right now. But if we were to step back, we'd see that it fits somehow. It fits in what God is doing. He, he says as well, we have, he says we have eternity in our hearts, um, and this is a difficult thing, again, to understand what's he meaning here. He gives us the reason, though. Here's why God puts eternity in our hearts, he says, is so that there's a purpose clause here. The purpose of it is that we won't understand what he's doing. This is, again, part of Colette's maybe frustration with the way the world is. He says, not only is this the way it happens, all these things happen to us. We don't always know how it fits. But it seems like God's done this on purpose. He's put all these times in our lives. He's given us the ability to understand how time works and to think about the future and the past. He's put eternity into our hearts, this ability to reason and to think and to question and to wrestle. And yet, we'll never be able to see, at least on this side of death, what the order is to it, how it fits together, how it becomes beautiful. 
This is Coelette kind of alluding to the idea here that maybe ignorance is bliss. Maybe if we couldn't think about these questions, we'd be a little happier. Instead, our lot, the job God has given us, is to wrestle with these things. But notice where he lands. We keep reading in, in verse 12. Because of these things, he says, I perceived that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, verse 13, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Because in light of what God does, in light of what happens to us, in light of all the things that life entails, and the truth that all things will fit in the end, he says the task for humanity, what's, what's best for us to do, is to enjoy life find pleasure in the things that were put in front of us. He summarizes it. He says to eat and to drink and to find our work pleasurable because this is God's gift to us. Here's, here's Colette's conclusion here. What should be our reaction in a world where things happen that we don't always understand, but yet we have faith that one day they will make sense? He says that posture, what's created by those two truths, is someone who sits back and like a child enjoys what they've been given, is able to take with this childlike faith and joy the gifts in front of them. And so when they eat and when they drink, they give thanks for it. And there might be times where they have more to eat and more to drink. There are better food to eat and better drink to drink than at other times. But whatever the case is in front of them as creatures, acknowledging their dependence on God for life, they simply accept it as a gift. We've talked about this a bit in, in the way that this takes pressure off of us when we can accept life as a gift. We don't always feel the need to pull the levers as hard or try to control how things turn out. But this is a really profound posture, a way to live in the world. A world where there might be more peace, where there might be more war, where there might be more healing, or there might be more pain and suffering. Is to say, with whatever my lot is, whatever my portion is in front of me, I accept it and I give thanks for that which has been given to me to enjoy. If we return back to this question of, of having children, like I said, this is not something that is just located in this one philosophical school. Um, the Buddhist tradition has a lot to say about this question, as well as the Christian tradition. Um, and one thing theologians would love to point out to you when we think about this is that we often ignore just how bold of a thing it is to have kids, particularly as Christians, particularly historically. So to think about this. If you're one of these first Christians in the Roman Empire, the first few centuries, and you're in a time and a place where persecution is rampant, what does it mean for you to continue to have kids when you know that you might be killed for your faith? What does that say about what you think about the world? What does that say about what you think about the future of the world? How, how is such a person formed? What goes on inside of them emotionally and mentally and spiritually that they might bring children into this world? It's difficult for us to imagine or get our mindset in because of the circumstances in which we live. But these early Christians, often when they were persecuted, their whole family was persecuted. And so many of them, this is totally foreign to most of us, um, not many of them, some of them would experience a situation where they would come up out of baptism to be killed for their faith. 
They would make a conversion. They'd go through the processes in the early church to, to get baptized and become a Christian, and then they would have their life taken from them. And again, not only their life, but their children's lives. And we have these stories, these stories of the martyrs from the early church, and even up throughout history. Surprisingly, it still happens at various times and places where people sing with joy while they have their life taken from them and while they watch their children suffer for their own faith. And we wonder, how can this be? How can that possibly be? That, that goes against the grain of all that we think and all of our postures in the world. And we, we wonder, what kind of a courageous and bold decision is this? To have children in a world where there is suffering and pain, where you might need to endure watching your children suffer, whether the father watch Jesus suffer, is to live in a world in which you say that the suffering and pain of the world do not ultimately determine the way I live. There's something beyond the immediate circumstances that influences how I live and how I react and how I hope. It's to live in a world in which you say the pain of today does not affect my response to tomorrow. That there is hope for the future. There is joy to be had. It's a world where you have received everything that is yours as a gift, and you wish to give that gift on to someone else, knowing that no matter how that gift is received or experienced, that ultimately, at the end, it is received. This is why I think the table is such a big part of Christian worship in such an important way that we can even think about what it means to be a Christian in the world. We come to the table every week at worship to give thanks. It's called the Eucharist, from the Greek word to give thanks. Jesus gave thanks for the bread and the wine the night he was betrayed. And as we come, we give thanks for the salvation given to us as we participate with Jesus and are united with him. The table is, in microcosm, a picture of Christians in the world. If you think about it, the table never closes. This is the reason we go to the table every time we meet. This is the reason historically Christians have done that in that manner. The table isn't closed during a time of war or a time of killing. It's not determined by our circumstances. We don't go, well, we've lost all of our wealth as a society, as families, as a community. Or, well, this disease is ravaging us or our population or our family. So there's nothing to give thanks for. No, our lives are constituted by, we're made up of the thanksgiving we give at the table to God. And equally important, we don't close the table down or think it's superfluous when things are going well in our lives. We don't go, well, we've got a lot of money, there's no need to go to the table. Or we're very healthy right now, there's no need to gather around the table. No, in all times, and all circumstances, it's thanksgiving that characterizes us. It's Thanksgiving that allows us to continue in this world, to bring others into this world with confidence and joy and hope. And that allows us to perform the task God has given us with joy and with strength and with vigor. It's Thanksgiving. It's, it's gratitude that allows us to wake up in the morning no matter what's happening around us and do what God has called us to do. Whether that is take care of our children, go to work, whether it is to teach or to go to the courtroom, whether it is to be a doctor, whether it is to um, do whatever the many tasks that you and I have been called to do in creation. 
This morning as we worship, I am inviting us to consider our posture in the world. What is it that describes us as people? Are we more characterized by kneeling? Are our knees on our floor the most characteristic posture that we take? Having knees on the floor, to me, symbolizes needing something, symbolizing dependency, symbolizes a request, crying out for help. Are we more characterized by standing, which perhaps might symbolize our sufficiency, our lack of need for something else? Or are we most characterized? Are we most truly human? Are we most in the right place when we're sitting around or standing around a table with our brothers and sisters on one side or the other? giving thanks for the life God has given us and the life which is to come that we will enjoy. Colette says after all of his conclusions, after looking about all the ingredients that come into this life that can so often be painful and frustrating, he says there's nothing better for you and I than to enjoy what we have been given, to eat and to drink, to find meaning in our toil, to accept these things as gifts from the hand of God himself. This morning, you are invited to come and place your faith that one day all things will fit, they'll be ordered. You're invited this morning to open up your hands to receive God's gift for you, for your children, for this world once again. Will you pray with me?